to November 4th. I'm Toby Moffat. My co-host, Abby, is Abigail Omajolo, is uh, out today. So in place of uh, Abby, in the early part of the show, introducing the guests, we have a special treat, our producer, Olivia Columbus. Uh, we hope uh, we hope that uh, you've been watching the shows. We, we try very hard to uh, tackle issues that on November 4th, the day after the election, and hopefully the day after Donald Trump is gone, uh, that there'll be a conversation provoked, a very healthy conversation, not just about rebuilding America, but about reimagining America and a whole series and a whole uh, long list of important critical issues. So our last show, some of you may have seen, uh, we talked about climate and all the work that's going to have to be done to, uh, first of all, uh, undo as much of the Trump damage to the environment and to climate, uh, our climate challenge as, as is possible. Uh, but also begin building new coalitions, new agreements, perhaps re-enter Paris. Uh, we had a, a wonderful uh, activist from 350.org, the organization that's a global uh, climate advocacy group. And we had a former mayor of, uh, of a city who was the uh, chair of the U.S. Conference of Mayors Task Force on Climate and Jobs. So if you missed that, you can go back and catch that one. We had a show on uh, uh, the Department of Justice and how it's been corrupted and what's going to have to be done to to rebuild that with Congressman Steve Cohen of uh, Cohen of Tennessee, who chairs the uh, Constitution Subcommittee on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, and we've we've examined other issues as well and had a number of uh, really great uh, guests. So, uh, with that, uh, we're going to look into immigration, and we're going to look into immigration from uh, one side to the other, from immigration policies that impact poor, often desperate people trying to come to this country to build a new life and to fill jobs that in many cases, a lot of other people aren't interested in taking, to companies, big institutions, companies, universities, and others that are finding themselves hampered by the Trump administration restrictive immigration policies, particularly when it comes to uh, students, foreign students at universities and to uh, highly skilled uh, labor, uh, talented labor from countries around the world. Uh, so with that, um, uh, Olivia will introduce our guests and bring them to the stage, and then we can start to, uh, the discussion. Olivia? Hi, yes. So we have three fantastic guests here with us today. Um, our first guest works directly with a steering committee of more than 350 CEOs, university presidents, chambers of commerce, and immigrant advocates to support the passage of pro-immigrant policy at the state and federal levels. As the executive director of the American Business Immigration Coalition, she has worked tirelessly to win public bipartisan support for common sense immigration policies to strengthen the American economy and keep families together. So please join me in welcoming Rebecca Shi. Our next guest is deeply committed to social justice and has dedicated his career to advocating for immigrant rights. As a journalist, he spent time reporting on urban policy and human rights issues and has held several positions at organizations focused on supporting immigrant rights, including executive director of Families for Freedom, where he advocated for families facing or fighting deportation. He is now director, deputy, deputy director of policy and communications, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, where he helps shape the organization's communication strategy. Please join me in welcoming Abraham Paulos. And our final guest spent 10 years in a variety of positions with the United States House of Representatives, most recently as Senior Counsel for Immigration Law and Policy, 
working on a wide range of enforcement and benefits issues. His experience includes the creation and implementation of novel and progressive programs to provide legal assistance to underserved populations, as well as extensive coalition building and advocacy in pursuit of legal and regulatory reform. He is currently director of policy at the American Immigration Council, where he directs the council's administrative and le legislative advocacy and leads the council's efforts to provide lawmakers, policymakers, advocates, and the general public with accurate and timely information about the role of immigrants in the United States. Please welcome, please join me in welcoming Jorge Lowry. Well, we'll wait for uh, we'll wait for Jorge for a moment. If we don't get him, we'll uh, we'll start the conversation, and then he can join us as soon as uh, Olivia can get him up on stage. Uh, just wait one or two more seconds. I'm here. So let, why don't we start, and then uh, we can all uh, welcome Jorge when he gets here. Um, part of our thinking about this particular episode of November fourth was to get people like you, advocates for different aspects of the immigration challenge, together in one place so that we might be able to get a glimpse of what's possible in a coalition um, uh, across a broad, a broad spectrum from, as I said at the beginning, people who are working uh, tirelessly to prevent separation of families, deportation, and other inhumane activities by this administration. And then people uh, uh, like Rebecca and her group that are working at a, a quite a different uh, level and to try to see what you all might have uh, in common. Uh, so let me, let me begin by, by, by asking each of you, um, what, what, what's possible if you have a Biden administration and I think if you have a Biden administration, you'll have a Senate also controlled by Democrats as well as the House. Uh, what, what's possible as far as a coalition uh, uh, is concerned? How broad can it be? Rebecca, have you, have you and your colleagues, you work with, uh, uh, as Olivia said in the introduction, you work with uh, CEOs of 350 or more organizations, big companies, big universities, other institutions. Uh, can you see those people and your group and people like you supporting um, policies that uh, bring back some humanity into our immigration system for poor, desperate people who are trying to get here to build a new life? Sure. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, thank you so much for having me um, on this program. Um, so the business community is uh, very diverse. We welcome Democrats, Republicans, and independents, um, as well as immigrant-led businesses and entrepreneurs that are part of APIC, major trade associations, financial institutions. We welcome uh, them all. Um, so we've been around uh, you know, for the last uh, six years starting in Illinois, and now we are in Florida, Texas, and also have business voices in North Carolina, Wisconsin, um, and a few other states. Um, our business leaders come to the fight for immigrants for uh, different reasons. Some of them you named at the top. Um, um, you know, one of our co-chairs and co-founders, John Rowe, 
He's a Republican CEO. He built Exelon, uh, the utility empire, uh, while contributing to charter schools, where he discovered that the students he was responsible for teaching could not go to college. And he was shocked. And he thinks it's economically harmful, morally wrong. And as a Republican, he thinks it's politically foolish because the country is changing. Um, you know, some of the act activists may not agree with him on charter schools or minimum wage, um, but they can work together and we can work together on legalization of the undocumented, um, you know, and the 11 million as well as our dreamers. Um, I think to your question about what would happen if, um, you know, Biden is uh, elected and um, knock on wood that uh, he does, you know, we really do believe that the, the kind of the story that will come out of the elections is because of the foolishness of the Republican Party um, on this issue, right? Like we we remember in 2012, uh, Rom Mitt Romney's self-deportation immigration policy, you know, led to um, uh, President Obama winning. The Republican Party then went into an autopsy, right, of the party, what they did wrong, and one of the big takeaways was uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, and not embracing a broader uh, coalition. And as a result of that, the uh, Senate gain of a uh, bill did pass comprehensive immigration reform. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's our hope and that's what we will keep working and fighting for for uh, uh, 2021, so. I think we might be having some connectivity issues with Toby, so um, I'll just go ahead and jump in. Maybe we can take turns if that's okay. Can you all hear Sounds me? Sounds like a plan. Good. Okay. Yep, I hear you. Yeah, yeah I mean, so the, the question of what happens ultimately next year, assuming there's a change in administration and uh, change in control of the Senate is, is at, at least from my perspective, it's one that's very difficult to um, answer. That The reality is that the rise of, of President Trump has had a major impact on public opinion in this country, and that's especially uh, true when it comes to immigration issues. We're, we're in the midst of a major political reorientation, uh, which makes it more difficult than ever to predict what will or will not be possible, um, frankly, tomorrow, much less next year. So there's obviously a great deal of support for DREAMers, as Rebecca mentioned, in Congress and across the US, uh, more so than ever before. And the bill providing them with a path to permanent status or citizenship would almost certainly pass uh, if it were to, to come up uh, for a vote. But the reality is that there are far uh, more issues within our immigration system that, that need to be addressed. Um, and But frankly, it's unclear if the, the political will and space will exist to take a broader approach. We certainly hope that there will be. Um, but from you know detention issues, mass incarceration, to managing the future flow of people in and out of the country, to the barriers created for people who are already here and, and being able to obtain um, status, legal status, there is a lot of work to be done. Uh, but frankly, there's also a lot of work um, that needs to be done in rolling back many of the changes that the administration has made um, that will require a great deal of political capital. Um, and that will obviously impact the overall willingness of, of you know, members um, to take hard votes in Congress on, on related issues, 
Um, so frankly, it's, it's, it's unclear. We're, we're certainly optimistic and we're certainly driving towards positive movement um, at the council. Yeah, and so um, with that change that we're hoping to all see, I mean, each of your organizations focuses on something very specific. What is sort of the one, the biggest change, if you could have any, that you would love to see come out of, uh, you know, immigration reform uh, going forward? Um, I could take a stab at this and, and try to tie in the earlier, uh, the, the earlier question. I mean, I think um, what Toby was sort of saying about, you know, what's, in a Biden presidency, what would be different, particularly for immigration issues? I mean, I think number one, we wouldn't have a white supremacist as president. So that would be kind of helpful for um, just the level of fear that is now going on in the country, and the level of fear that is generated by the Republican Party, um, and also dog whistling around racism. So that would be like, great. Um, as far as policy-wise, like what would we be able, as far as the Black Alliance for Just Immigration? Um, and I think that um, Jorge, you know, really brought up some really good points that we are looking at. There has been some long um, instilled policies and laws that are still in the United States and are still the law of the land. And a lot of it really stems out of the Clinton administration in 1996 with the illegal immigration reform and immigrant responsibility act and the anti-terrorism effect of death penalty act but the point being is that the last time that immigration laws were overhauled in this country was also during the war on drugs and so it essentially was laws that basically punished immigrants and increased the detention uh, system in this country and increased deportation in this country so i think one of the things is also with trying to add new legislation I think one of the things is to rethink things and sort of say, hey, you know what, we need to repeal some of these laws that have that have actually been in the books that have given rise to the largest deportation that probably any country has ever seen um, in the, the context of modern history. And I would I will I will end it there because I really want to hear what Rebecca and uh, Jorge are looking forward to as far as a Biden presidency uh, moving forward. And I also do think at some point, we can also open it up to uh, thinking about what, what happens if Trump does stay in there. Because I do believe that in 2016, it was still sort of the same vibe, like this dude's not going to win. Um, and then he did. And so a lot of us got caught with our pants down. So I'd like to keep it a balanced kind of conversation. Um, you know, obviously, we want, you know, Biden to win for our communities and for our families. But um, the reality is, is that we're probably still in the same place that we were in 2016, thinking there's no way um, the the apprentice is is going to is, is going to win. Yeah, I think just to um, to add to Abraham, for us as ABIC, our priority in 2021, if Biden is elected, would be um, legalization and citizenship for the 11 million starting um, with our dreamers. Um, you know, as a business organization, we believe in the power of the market, right? We believe that in order to grow the economy, you need workers. And by 2030, nearly the entire population growth will be from um, immigrants, um, you know, immigrants from Asia, from the Latin American countries, from Africa. 
Um, and in order to have a robust economy as we weather and recover from COVID, we need a robust um, workforce. Um, you know, even just my own story, my mother and father were doctors in China and my mother specialized in pathology. My dad was a heart surgeon. Um, but then for 19 years, my mother was here uh, with an order of deportations and she had work, had to work in restaurants and because of Congressman Gutierrez and President Obama, her deportation was overturned and she was finally able to work um, in a laboratory. And so, you know, think of someone who's a pathologist who worked as a waitress. Um, next time you go to a Chinese restaurant, right? That, that waitress could be a doctor. Um, and in my mother's case, that was right. And so just thinking about how much of an economic loss that is for our country, not to have a rational system that creates a path to legal status and citizenship for the 11 million. So that would be our number one priority. Yeah, for sure. Jorge, do you guys have a, a priority on your end? Sure. Uh, so I, it's it's very challenging to narrow things down to, to a, a singular priority, given the the state of the immigration system in this moment, right? So across the political spectrum, one of the the only things that people can agree on when it comes to immigration is that the current system just isn't working for us. Um, obviously, people's opinion as to why and what needs to change vary, but but the current system, frankly, as Abraham said. Much of it um, has has been the, the same and has been on the books since uh, the, the mid 90s, since 1996. Um, but since that time, we, we have come to realize that, that we made some mistakes um, as a nation on the criminal justice side, and uh, we've better understood the, the consequences that, um, that that sort of mentality mentality and policy making has had on Black communities and people of color generally. And reforming our laws and rethinking some of the penalties, criminal justice laws and penalties. Uh, is something that enjoys bipartisan support in this moment, right? Including to some extent by President Trump. Um, the IRA, IRA though, was um, was created in that same vein, but we haven't come around to the idea that we must also start to reconsider other laws um, beyond criminal justice, um, like IRA, IRA, that were created in the same political era, um, and that also create disparate consequences for people of color in this country. Um, so, I, I mean, reimagining re a, a system generally that, that has a greater level of respect for um, due process and just sheer humanity in the U.S. is something that, that's very important for the council. Um, issues of, of immigration detention, the way that we treat, the, the way that we detain people, tear families apart um, in completely unnecessary ways, the, the fact that discretion has been removed in many ways from our removal system and people end up sitting in jail cells for relatively minor crimes and even well after they've already paid their debt to society is something that we're very, very concerned with um, and, and think needs to change immediately. Uh, but we're also very concerned with uh, legalization and normalization and um, rethinking the way that the people are allowed to come here and the, the way that people are allowed to obtain status once they're in the U.S. as well. So. Um, there's quite a bit from our perspective that needs to change. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Rebecca touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to hear um, from each of you. You know, obviously we're living in incredibly unprecedented times. 
And, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has just totally upended uh, so many parts of our lives. Um, but how has the ongoing recession caused uh, largely by the pandemic decreased support for immigration? And how do your organizations and you as individuals try to persuade the American citizens in this time that immigration is still so beneficial to our society's stability and security? So whoever would like to take that one, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I on the recession, I'm, I'll probably leave that up to, to Rebecca. She, I, I feel like she's really good on the economy. Um, the, the one thing I do want to say as far as legalization goes to, to what Jorge and Rebecca have said um, about the 11 million and um, the dreamers, of course, like we see immigration as a, a justice issue and not necessarily like completely centered as an economic issue, right? And so what that does is that that gives us space to really start to look at immigration and let's take the dreamers, for instance, and sort of say, yes, legalization, but we need to be a little bit careful that we're not just centering it on, on the economy, right? This is about people's lives, people's families. And just like Rebecca shared the story, you know, about her mom, I'm an immigrant here too. I came as a refugee. And so really looking at immigration as, uh, sort of a humanitarian protection for those that are fleeing, right? We still have a moral obligation on that. Um, and I think that I just wanted to make that point in there. And then also with Jorge talking about mass criminalization and the challenging and the reckoning of white supremacy in this country. And if you think about it, I always like to think about the 60s in which black, black people in this country challenged white supremacy, which also got us the civil rights of 1965 and the Voting Rights Act but also the Immigration Act of 1965, right? Which then changed the face of, of immigrants here, right? So in 1965, about more than 80% of immigrants were white people from Europe. And in about the 90s, that completely changed, right? Until what Rebecca said now, it's that it's black and brown people coming from Africa, South America, Asia, um, that are coming into this country. And so the makeup of, of, of America and what an American looks like is, is vastly different. And we need to sort of look at that as saying, all right, well, what are the justice issues in America that, that we are talking about? And how does immigration sort of play a part in that? As far as to the question around COVID-19, um, you know, the black immigrant community is, is, is definitely, definitely wrapped up in that, right? Um, most Black immigrants that are workers work in the healthcare industry. Um, almost three in 10 of all black immigrant workers work in the, the, the healthcare sector. And so this is also um, a space in which we're really looking at as like, all right, well, you know, we need um, healthcare workers right now. Not necessarily the police, which we could talk about later if you guys want to get into that, but we need teachers right now, right? And these are spaces within our society that we all benefit right, as a community. And so immigrants are also uh, sewed into the textile and the fabric of this country. And so particularly black immigrants, right? And our integration is not into white America, our integration is into black America. And so I think the changes for us that we've seen in the last five, six months outside of the recession, because I, I think we still got a couple months to really see what that looks like and we're in the beginning of it, but really starting to understand is like, in our society, when we're going through a global pandemic, what are what are really, really important things that we need? And immigrants have been essential, you know, 
as essential workers to be able to get this country back on track. Yeah, well, you know, what's really interesting I find in this moment um, of COVID is that um, COVID has laid bare this and really debunked the myth that immigrants take American jobs, right? I mean, we have an unemployment today of 10.5, 10.7 and like historic unemployment. Um, even given that, there are jobs, you know, say, um, you know, the, the, the field in which Abraham just named plus food processing, crop production, frontline work, this essential workforce um, that, you know, Americans, uh, given the unemployment, high unemployment, the availability of, of workers are not there to fill. Um, and so, um, you know, one of our co-chairs, uh, is Paul Damari, who's the largest tomato grower in the country. Um, he's from South Florida. He's a Republican donor. And he tells us, you know, the most ironic thing is that, that he sees farm workers, undocumented workers now are able to carry a card um, from DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, that names them essential. Right, so that when they're stopped by the Florida Police Department, they cannot be deported now that they're protected um, because they're you know, an essential part of, of our um, American food supply chain as you know, many American workers are able to work from home and um, be you know, taken care of and well-fed by these immigrant and undocumented uh, farm workers. And we've seen that you know, in the last four COVID packages, that even American um, uh, citizens who are married to undocumented were left out of uh, COVID relief. Um, and you know, this was a cruel decision made by President Trump. But we've seen that in this last round of COVID relief, you have Republicans like Marco Rubio and you have Republicans like David Perdue that are saying, you know, no, we got to in include this up to 2 million families you know, and Perdue's bill to, to allow immigrant um, physicians and nurses and physician's assistants to get on a path to a green card and citizenship. Um, so in, in some sense that, you know, given the, the kind of the last three nights, two nights of um, horrific, um, you know, RNC and this, con this you know, narrative of immigrants, um, um, that like the reality is that uh, COVID um, in some sense has really laid bare of, of who is on the front lines doing work, the, the difficult, dangerous um, dirty work that na native born um, citizens won't do, um, even at 10.5% unemployment, so. I think I'm back, can you all hear me? Can you yes. hear me? Oh, good, I'm, I apologize uh, to our guests and the audience. We had, just as we were starting the show, we had a horrific uh, thunder and lightning storm here on the Connecticut shore and lost everything. So I'm, I uh, managed to to get back in on my phone, but I apologize. I, I but I've, I have uh, heard uh, the discussion uh, through my phone while Olivia was trying to get me back up on the screen. Um, this is very useful. Again, though, a little bit more on what a co coalition looks like and who puts it together. If the U.S. Chamber, for example, decides that they want a coalition, they, they're not known for working uh, very much, I would imagine, with the uh, 
with, with your groups, maybe with yours, Rebecca, but not the others, not uh, uh, Jorge and, and Abraham, but who, who, who are the best people to put a coalition together that stretches across, uh, you know, a wide swath of territory and, 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 and interests? And do you, do you foresee a coalition where the business roundtable uh, supports uh, uh, DACA uh, uh, relief for the dreamers? Uh, and do you foresee a coalition where um, Jorge, your group, or Abraham, your group, uh, would uh, lobby on behalf of reform of H-1B uh, visas and, and other things that Rebecca has to be focused on? Is that realistic with a Biden presidency and a, a democratically controlled Congress? I guess, Jorge, you're the, you're the political guy here from, in terms of Hill experience. So what do you think about that? Sure. So I, um, I mean, wh one thing that that I'm happy to say is that um, the political environment of the last few years, especially with respect to immigrants, has um, really expanded the the interest in working on these issues and has brought many more people into the the work than than were participating just not too long ago, right? Just a handful of years ago. Um, it's clear that a great deal more collaboration is, is necessary. We absolutely need to become more collaborative in our work with others to identify problems, you know, share ideas, um, con uh, conduct research, share resources. Um, well, one of the issues that we face as um, organizations that work on Im immigrant rights issues um, is that we, we find ourselves often competing against each other, right, for what is a limited pool of resources. And, and the problem with that is that it, it keeps us from being able to build on each other's successes and, and by extension, you know, limits the acceleration of, of progress. So um, a more collaborative approach that would call on leaders across sectors to work together to, to help us expand our collective resources, uh, create a greater level of, you know, intellectual diversity, but also force us to sit down and, and reconsider our, our overall approaches is critical. And frankly, the, the bottom line is that we need to collectively find ways to, to connect with people that are on the other side of this issue uh, and those who, you know, may may not be on the other side, but are just ambivalent in um, deep and personal ways to, to speak to, to to connect with them and to speak to the common values. Uh, we have to focus on increasing the overall solidarity that people feel and creating communities, fostering communities where more and more people feel like they belong, uh, because that's ultimately how we create um, or increase the likelihood that, that we can achieve significant and, and enduring change in this country. How much is, uh, is success in, in this area dependent upon Biden-Harris uh, making up with the world, so to speak, and changing our image? Rebecca? Um, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? You were cutting out a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry. How much of, of what, what you, we need to get done on reform depends on Biden and Harris really effectively creating policies that make up with the, make up with the world for the last four years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I believe that if Biden's elected, right, there's going to be another, um, like what happened after the Romney laws, another autopsy and, and 
Um, a big lesson will be the foolishness of the Republican Party on immigration. Um, and I think it's up to us as advocates on the business side or you know, with uh, Jorge and also Abraham on the advocate side to really push to make sure a Biden-Harris uh, uh, administration will do immigration reform, starting with the Dreamers um, off the gate within the first 100 days, as we've seen with the Obama administration, that um, once we miss that opportunity in the first term, it's, it's going to be, uh, or even the first two years, right, it's going to be a lot more a lot more difficult. Um, but I will also say, and just, you know, I think back to Abraham's kind of uh, question earlier, right? I think, you know, um, we believe even if Trump is reelected, um, we, you know, do expect that he will, um, to some extent, betray his anti-immigrant base. Um, we know that there is an immigration reform proposal that Jared Kushner wants to push through. Um, you know, Trump has already said that DACA and TPS are his hostages. Um, there are certain things that he wants um, and he needs these hostages to trade, right? Um, and so, you know, his deal in terms of trading the lives of immigrants living in terror and uncertainty for what he wants um, in the future on immigration. Um, so, you know, um, our, our expectation is if he were to win, there will also be an immigration fight um, next year. Um, and for both scenarios, right, the, the, the economic reality is that the U.S. needs immigrants, uh, the high and the low skill ends, um, in order to strengthen our nation and create jobs. So um, I think, you know, more than ever, these coalitions are important. Um, Biden's elected, got to hold him accountable, and Harris uh, to to go out um, uh, with guns blazing with the best package we can get. Um, and then I think there is an opportunity, too, if Trump is reelected. Great. Um, let me ask uh, Olivia, who's backstage, if we have any uh, questions, let's uh, bring them up or bring the people to the stage or... Um, uh, bring the written question to the stage at, at any at any point. Seems like we respond to. Oh, sorry about that, Toby. No, you go ahead. You go ahead, please. Um, so just respond to a couple of things that Jorge and Rebecca just brought up. I mean, I think when we're looking at um, trade offs, right? Rebecca brought up like, and so trade offs has actually been sort of the immigrant rights uh, approach to a lot of this stuff, which which makes it hard for. Um, this coalition that you speak of, Toby, right? And so it's always been a trade-off. It's like, well, here, we'll, we'll deal with the dreamers, but we also want mass deportations, right? Um, and so this is the way that immigration has been negotiated. And this is a way that actually is detrimental to uh, a rights movement as it is. Now, going back to your question about a coalition, I think what what has been su like supportive and what has been beneficial is the immigrant rights movement also joining other coalitions, right? And so we've seen how the LGBTQ community, right, is also bringing up their issues, but then also bringing up an immigration angle to their issues. We see the religious uh, movement bringing up, uh, you know, their, their uh, angle with religious freedom uh, against the Muslim ban. Right. And we see this in the work that we do with detention and deportation of those that have had contact with the criminal legal system and trying to bridge it with the criminal justice reform that's happening in this country that Jorge brought up. Right. And so I think that, I mean, again, from my perspective and my point of view is that we need to broaden. Right. Instead of focusing so much on on our insular. Right. Broaden 
uh, the coalitions that we have outside of the immigrant rights movement. Another example is like the labor movement, right? And looking at the labor movement and sort of saying, hey, you guys have a movement here. Here's some language from the immigrant rights or here's some language from uh, immigrant activists that we would like to you to use when you're talking about labor. Um, and so I think that that's just one approach that has been promising in the last little bit instead of it being a very insular type of coalition to actually say, hey, you know what, all of these issues that we're going through, whether that's housing, whether that's the economy, whether that's, um, you know, um, legalization or whatever have you, has an immigrant component, just like in America. There's an immigrant component to everything that we do here off the, the sheer fundamental um, basis of it being the United States of America that was, you know, um, basically, you know, whatever, founded by immigrants or whatever have you, that that sort of yeah that's interesting um olivia if there are questions you can come back up on stage and uh and, and read them or or bring the person up on stage be fine okay great so we have a question from the audience and the question is uh she would like to know your thoughts uh all three of you on Trump's quote unquote stunt this week, showcasing the naturalization ceremony at the White House during the RNC. I'm happy to jump in if it's okay. Go for it. Um, it, it, was, um, it was surprising to me to, to see um, a little ceremony in the middle of a, a political campaign. Um, you know, the, the, the way that people were paraded out in front of cameras Apparently, according to news reports, they weren't even told that they would be part of the RNC um, and may not have even been told that the president would be there. Um, so it, it's very concerning that, you know, that the system and um, people that, that are a part of it are being, you know, exploited for political purposes. Beyond that, though, it, it created this great deal of cognitive dissonance in that um, it's inconsistent with what we've seen in recent years, right? That the actual treatment, the approach to our system of legal Im immigration, which, um, you know, came pretty close to coming to a screeching halt. Um, well, actually it would have been at the end of this week, starting next week with the furloughs of 13,000, over 13,000 people that work at USCIS, three quarters of, of all the personnel that work there, right? Um, and the administration had taken a, a relatively hands-off approach. Um, there wasn't a great deal of concern, at least public, you know, something that was publicly noticeable uh, from them in maintaining operations so that people that wish to naturalize can continue to do so in, in a timely manner. So it, it was just, uh, it was disheartening to see. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, um, Jorge. I think, I think it was, well, there's obviously the issue of consent right? And you're talking about vulnerable people that are finally getting their U.S. citizenship and them not knowing, right? But then them probably not being able to say no, uh, considering that, you know, uh, the fate of their lives is in this uh, this person's hand. Um, and I think with the Republican National Convention, just in general, it it's probably the closest I will ever get to a Ku Klux Klan meeting. Um, just with the sort of the fear-mongering, um, and and just the dog whistling and, and whatever have you. So that stunt, which is what it is, and the reader was right, or the person that asked the question was right, that it that it was a stunt. But the whole debacle 
of, of, of the RNC, it, it fits in there. And I also felt the same way when they parade black people up there, right? To, to talk on behalf of Trump saying, I, I know racism and he's not a racist. Um, so I just think that like, it just kind of goes to show the tone deafness that this uh, party has. It also shows how um, white supremacists uh, that, that, that they hold so close and so dear. So that stunt was a part of a larger um, picture which is, you know, again, um, yeah, the closest I'll get to, to, to the type of meeting. Great, so we have another audience question. Um, what do your, do your organizations recommend we do to immediately and effectively tackle the immigration court backlog issue with over 1 million cases currently in the queue? I'm gonna allow that to Jorge. Jorge, do you have any thoughts on this? Sure, sorry. I was having a hard time getting off of mute. No problem. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a major issue and it's, it's a growing issue that has been impacted by COVID-19, right? Because of the closure of, of courts across the country, uh, some of them coming back online now. Um, it's something that our partner organization, the American Immigration Lawyers Association has been very involved in. Um, and it's, it's a, it's something that, that we're going to continue to work on um, in the near future and, and well into next year. The, the issue, though, is that the current approach of creating quotas, of having a ticker on, on judges' screens, of um, tying a judge's performance evaluation to the number of cases that they actually close, of reorienting the power structure, not just with the, within the immigration court, but within the, the Board of Immigration Appeals, uh, to give political actors a great deal of um, say over individual cases. That's that's an approach that we absolutely need to uh, walk away from and, and reconsider entirely, right? We, we need to consider, we need to consider um, dedicating increased resources to the immigration courts, but also ensure that, uh, that they're used in a sensible manner, that we aren't hiring judges that, you know, either have no immigration law experience whatsoever or are so, solely taken from the ranks of immigration and customs enforcement. So you're taking prosecutors and then making them um, judges and populating the bench um, across the board that way. Um, it's, it's a big issue um, and it's something that, that needs to be tackled through legislation um, and also through the appropriations process um, starting in fiscal year 2021. Yeah, so we have one more uh, audience question. And it is uh, it kind of relates to something Abraham mentioned earlier about uh, organizations needing to work together. So um, what tension do you guys notice between uh, national organizations focusing on immigration reform and local and state-based organizations and how you think we can work through that tension to more cohesively work together towards a common goal? Um, I can take a step at that first. Um, so our experience has been in, uh, and really over the last four years since uh, this um, administration has been focusing on the states, uh, states like Texas and Florida, where we've seen um, Trump-like governors or deputy governors advancing, uh, show me your paper bills, um, anti-sanctuary bills and you know, working with advocates, with the faith community, the immigrant rights community, the labor uh, unions to build a coalition 
um, to uh, defeat um, those measures. Um, and we've been fairly successful in stopping the repeal of in-state tuition in Texas, um, stopping and really watering down, well, first stopping the show me your papers in Florida and then watering um, down the uh, uh, mandatory um, E-Verify, which uh, became just mandatory I-9 for all, which is the status quo anyways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely took a lot of um, just trust building and um, a, uh, an active campaign of, of moving votes on both sides and, and communications and knowing um, uh, and, and understanding that, you know, we have a common goal, um, but we're going to speak in different voices and have different relationships. Um, but that, you know, our end game of you know, defeating these uh, horrible anti-immigrant measures are, are the same. Um, and I would say that that has translated, at least for us, um, ABIC, this last six months during the COVID package fights to make it immigrant inclusive, building uh, um, building off of the the local, the state work that we did, since a lot of these uh, state-based immigrant rights organizations are also have their national affiliation. Um, I think that the, the trust that we build locally has translated into greater partnership um, nationally to now, you know, we're trying to get, um, making sure that uh, immigrants are included in this upcoming COVID package. Well, thank you, Rebecca. That was, uh, that was great. Uh, thank you all for this. Uh, I hope that through your, your organizations, you'll, for those who weren't able to tune in, you'll, you'll uh, have your recording of this, which we'll provide and, and share it. Uh, I think it, uh, it certainly speaks volumes about the important work that all three of these organizations are doing and that you as leaders in those organizations are doing. So thank you. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Great. Thank you so thank much. You. Thanks. Thank you. It was great being on Rebecca, Jorge. Nice meeting you guys. Thank nice you. to meet you. Say hi to Nana. Uh, yeah, I will. Okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Rebecca, thanks. Thank you, guys.